Aaron Davis is a founder, developer, and a lead security researcher at MetaMask, a popular Ethereum wallet. He introduces us to LavaMoat, an approach to solving JavaScript software supply chain security for both Node and the browser. The LavaMoat runtime prevents modifying JavaScript's primordials, limits access to the platform API, and prevents packages from corrupting other packages. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Aaron Davis. At Security Journey, we believe security is every developer's job. We work with our customers to help them build long-term, sustainable security culture amongst all their developers. Our approach is to provide security education that's conversational, quick, hands-on, and fun. We don't do lectures. Instead, we let the experts talk about what's important. Modules are quick, 10 to 20 minutes in length. We believe in hands-on experiments, builder and breaker style, that allow your developers to put what they learned into action. And lastly, fun. Training doesn't have to be boring. We make it engaging and fun for the developers. Visit www.securityjourney.com to sign up for a free trial of the Security Dojo. Hey, welcome, folks, to another episode of the Application Security Podcast. This is Robert Hurlbut, Threat Modeling Architect. And I'm also joined here today by my co-host, Chris Romeo. Chris. Hey, Robert. Chris Romeo, CEO of Security Journey. And uh, definitely excited today to be talking about the world of software supply chain security, which seems like it's always in the news. There's always something happening in this space right now across the board. It does. It does. Quite often we, we see something about it. And so with that in mind, our special guest today is Aaron Davis. I think you're coming in from Indonesia. Is that correct? Yep. Uh, digital nomad in Bali. Wow. Very cool. So uh, for our listeners, what we usually do is uh, we, we ask our guest uh, their security origin story. So uh, Aaron, tell us that. What is your security origin story? Uh, yeah, so uh, I was really interested in, in making games and also in programming education for young people. I, I wanted to combine these things and create kind of like a multi-user dungeon of from the days of yore, um, where users can come together and sort of like create a game or create a space and, and do some programming in that space together. And so inevitably that means you're running tr code from some untrusted party and you have to find a way to sandbox that, get it to play nicely. Um, and that, that was fairly early in my programming career, so I was still figuring out what I was doing. Um, but that, that started uh, me thinking about, you know, how could you safely run this code that you didn't trust? Um, even if you could like sandbox all the way down, if it just runs an infinite loop, that's, that's a whole other problem. Oh, very cool. And so um, whenever you were trying to think through, I've done a little bit of game development, it's been years ago, but I remember that also helped sort of spark some interest in security as well and, and thinking about um, protecting different areas and, and, you know, verifying and so forth. But out of that, what, what, um, what were some of the challenges uh, in particular when you were writing some of those and thinking about security? Um, yeah, well, at that point, that was pretty early. And so I really didn't know what I was doing and didn't know um, what resources there were for sandboxing and, um, and then I kind of transitioned into more normal web development career and did a short time at Apple. And then uh, I kept hearing about the 
Ethereum blockchain. It was really interesting to me, not from a financial perspective, but from uh, this idea of sort of creating a virtual uh, mainframe that a bunch of code that a bunch of different people publish can, can interact in some way. And I, I couldn't quite imagine what it would be or, or how it would you know, evolve, uh, but the, the idea really, um, uh, really grabbed me. So I started early uh, with the Ethereum blockchain and I'm most know, known for my work starting MetaMask, which is a, a very popular Ethereum wallet. And it, it, it's a mobile app now and also a browser extension. And uh, both of those are, are made, uh, they're JavaScript apps. They're made from the JavaScript commons via the NPM ecosystem. And that, uh, and you know, they're, they're securing digital assets and via private keys. And, and so that uh, has a strong need for security, but uh, especially in the browser context, like we have good uh, security provided by the browser, um, but I'm, then you uh, introduce the problem of supply chain attacks, and and suddenly the world becomes a bit scarier. This this place that you thought was safe on the inside of the walls of the browser, suddenly uh, an attacker could be. Uh, already inside. The call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just chuckling as I'm, as I'm kind of thinking through and listening to your history and thinking, you know, at least you started with two easy problems, sandboxing and protecting <laughs> the world via crypto. Like, you know, a lot of people would, would have said, maybe we'll start with something simple like, you know, how can we make input validation better? You know, but you, know, you, went, you went big. So that's good. It's good to, good to have that perspective on the world. Yeah, so, so now the goal is, is no less small. It, it's trying to solve software supply chain security for the whole JavaScript ecosystem and be uh, backwards compatible as much as possible. So that's been a fun one. I've been working on that for um, a little over a year. And um, at, at first, I, you know, I, I tried doing some of these sandboxing things in you know, trying to make games and stuff in, in JavaScript. And there were a few... Um, packages and libraries that were suggesting that they could do security. And so I played with them and, and really found that they could, that they had a good idea, but um, it, it really uh, didn't, didn't work. You could find a hole, and once you found a hole, um, you know, there, there was no security provided. Or they worked by limiting uh, what you could run uh, to some subset of JavaScript that was so small it wasn't really compatible with any of the code you wanted to run. So I, I kind of had given up on it being um, possible. Um, you know, of course, if you're just for each thing you want to run, you're just spinning up a new process or something like that. If you're running on the server, you could do that. You can kind of do it in in workers and stuff like this on in the web platform. But then you're also at the risk of like resource starvation or something like that. And there's not ways good ways of doing metering or something like this. So it, it becomes a, sort of an unsolvable problem. And this, a lot of those challenges are still there. But then at um, Maybe two years ago at the Decentralized Web Summit in San Francisco, I met um, some folks from the Agoric team. I met Dean Tribble, and he told me he had a system where he could do, you know, in, in process, you know, inside of your JavaScript that's already running, um, build a little container in there, and everything can still talk synchronously. Um, and I didn't believe him. I, it was just that didn't seem possible at all. I, I, I chased that idea so many times that I couldn't find it. And, um, and uh, at some point after that, I think, the, the, what's commonly known as the event stream incident or the BitPay uh, wallet hack happened. And so 
this was a node module, a legitimate node module called event stream that had been around for a long time, used in many, many applications. It was even in the Azure CLI, um, there's a dependency of that. So it was basically everywhere. And um, but the the author, Dominic Tarr, he didn't use it, and you know, he gets nothing from maintaining it. Um, and so someone's like, hey, uh, you know, I'll help you maintain it. He's like, great, I don't even use it anymore. So he uh, added this new author, and a little bit later, this author uh, deployed a targeted attack against this Bitcoin wallet. Um, and so part of the problem is, once you get into a dependency, you can pretty much do anything. You just, you just run wild. There's very little, little limitations. Um, and so you have you know, network access to do your infiltration. You have di disk access or local storage or whatever it is on the platform you're on to take private keys. You can mutate what other classes do. Um, JavaScript particularly is very you know, mutable at runtime. You can change the behavior of almost different things. Um, and so that, that wreaks some havoc. So when you think about um, kind of the software supply chain in general, and so we, that, that's, that's a great example you just shared kind of from the event stream incident. Um, event stream incident, we, we would kind of bucketize or categorize that as JavaScript and Node. It's kind of where it fit in. When you think about this problem in general, um, it's definitely not just a JavaScript problem, right? This is, a, this is an industry-wide problem for all libraries, all package management, all open source that's everywhere, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can comment on some of the specifics of JavaScript. I think JavaScript is a little more dangerous than some other languages do, just due to the nature of the way it works. Um, but that's also my language of expertise. I'm sure if you found hackers for all the other languages, they could uh, find clever ways of really taking over um, as much as possible. But the um, basically, if you are able to run some code inside of an application, uh, very few software paradigms that are in use today, like prevent you from doing uh, very much. You're basically on the system of shell access. Um, and so if, in, you know, in, in my context, as a, all, another, a cryptocurrency wallet, much like this one that was hacked, like, uh, I, it was terrifying <laughs> to read something like this because uh, it could uh, happen to me as well. Um, so that, you know, launched me on this journey of like, we have to solve supply chain security for the JavaScript ecosystem, we have to do it now. So when you think about the attacks then, so with the event stream incident, I think of that as a, and there was a malicious actor involved who drove that through. Um, but then kind of the other side of the equation when you're thinking about software supply chain is just a known vulnerability in a package. So those are kind of the two categories that I tend to think of when I'm thinking software supply chain. Are there any other from your perspective, you know, when you're thinking about JavaScript and package management or anything, is there, are there other attacks that are, that are outside of those two categories or are those two the categories that really describe or kind of define all supply chain attacks? So the two categories were uh, like known vulnerabilities and targeted attacks? Yeah, those are the two. I tend to think of everything in those two buckets, but are there more buckets from your perspective as you're thinking about how you're trying to, you know, break JavaScript or, you know, attack from, from kind of your perspective? Um, no, that, that seems about right. And we're doing, uh, I'd say the ecosystem does a pretty good job about the, the known vulnerabilities. Like when your package manager installs things, it gives you a list of warnings and severities and um, 
uh, GitHub as well is, you know, is, will blow up your notifications with uh, new reports as. So if there's like a new prototype pollution vulnerability detected in this package at this version range, it will, you know, GitHub will notify you, your package manager will notify you. And other companies like SNCC that, you know, have services like this and automated fixes. Um, so we're doing well there, but the targeted attacks is, is what um, I'm particularly concerned about. Um, there's, you know, precedent of uh, similar organizations being attacked. And uh, one thing, one thing that's hard with these dependency graphs is you um, import this utility, this utility, this utility, this utility, and and so those are the ones that you're like really paying attention to. But all of those import things and import things and import things and import things. So you have that you know giant graph, but you're really um, mostly exposed to just the top layer. Yeah, and you get all the all the other goodies that sneak in. Yeah, <laughs> I had a hundred dependencies, and now all of a sudden there's eighty thousand packages in my application. What happened? Let me just code review all of them, which you know nobody could ever do anytime. Yeah, yeah, that was part of the thing. Is after the uh, you know the event stream incident went on, there's a ton of conversation like on Twitter, people saying like, "Oh, you should never use dependencies; it's too dangerous." And it seems like um, I, I really don't like that argument because it's. It's like the whole nice thing about technology is technology builds on technology, especially um, you know in the open source community, we're all sharing and like making progress. Um, but then the other side is you should uh, you know the other camp uh, was you should always uh, audit all of your dependencies always and like yeah of course that's a good idea that's that's a good thing but um, you know it's literally megabytes and megabytes of JavaScript and you have to figure out how all of it fits together. And then, and then you end up in a situation where, let's say, you have a loss causing potentially loss causing bug in production, and you want to fix it, and it requires some like cascading dependency updates. Are you going to hold that off while you audit these things? It's it's a tricky problem. Yeah, I mean that that argument that argument's made by somebody who's never developed an application before that says you should you should audit all of your dependencies. Well, you've never created a JavaScript node based application because, like, I'm not kidding, like it's. You can see an application where you have 100 dependencies that has 80,000 packages that are pulled into it. That's not, I'm not just making that up trying to be like, that's, that could be a, a relatively normal use case. And so for somebody to say, yeah, you got to audit them all, it's just not realistic. There's got to be something else we can do to either build trust, you know, into the open source ecosystem, which we're probably a little further away from being able to do that, where we're saying, hey, how could we sign all these packages so that you know, somebody is able to attest to the fact that, hey, a known good entity worked on this particular package and did it. That's a whole other category. But I think, you know, technology is going to be one of the ways that we approach this as well. Yeah, th there is that sort of, uh, there is the open, you know, the, the software ecosystem and sort of like financial aspect, like Azure, Microsoft was relying on uh, this dependency, among many of other dependencies. But, um, the, you know, this maintainer was not compensated for any of that, which was all the more reason why he was just like, sure, you have it. You know, I, I, I couldn't be bothered. I don't even use it. Um, so, so um, yeah, how can we, what can we do besides not using dependencies or, you know, um, what can we reduce the, how can we reduce the audit burden? Or something like this? Um, and so I started uh, thinking about uh, POLA, the um, principle of least authority, and so, like, if you if we can limit what we give those dependencies, then they're less dangerous, and um, they you know we can 
it's easier to audit them and it's easier to prioritize your audits through the, through the dependency graph and, and find where like, you know, exfiltration is going to happen through the network access. So we can look for the one place where there's network access, a couple places, instead of giving it to everything. Yeah, and so the, I mean, you were, you know, one of the things that kind of uh, brought you to our attention for this conversation was this, this lava moat thing. And so, um, first of all, great marketing name, Lava Moat. I kind of know what it what it does, but tell tell us a little bit about what Lava Moat is and what it actually does. Yeah. So the intention uh, of Lava Moat is to take your um, npm based node or browser application, and um, without really changing how your your code works at all, um, it, you run it in a way that applies a little sandbox around each package or module uh, based on a policy a policy file. And we also have a tool that auto automatically generates these policy files based on a static analysis of the code. Looks like it's using this thing, using that thing. So okay, we'll give that one network access and that. And afterwards you can you know just audit, audit that policy file, look at how the packages connect. And then there's a, a data visualization tool as well. So you can like see well, that one's particularly dangerous. It has network access, and um, you can see how all the uh, modules connect. So you can see how this one could get network access through that one. So if you imagine an attacker got, uh, you know, access to one of those modules, how is it going to um, be able to seal the information and then get it out, or whatever, whatever your attack, uh, whatever attack vector you're imagining? Uh, so that's all based on that Cess uh, container. That I, that I learned about from Agoric. Um, so what they came up with was, uh, so they're, they're working on a JavaScript standard, but it, it works today, you know, like they have a shim that you can run in, in JavaScript. And it's, um, it's basically a special eval function um, that uh, just constrains uh, what the code you put into eval, what it has access to. And it uses a with statement and a proxy in order to basically have a hook to whitelist what's trying to be accessed. So if you're going and say like, hey, give me the network, they'll say like, hey, the network is not in the policy file. So uh, throw an error and explode. And there's some other uh, tricks and things that need to be uh, you know, tied down and sawed off in order to not be dangerous um, and make it so you can't escape out of that container. But once you have that container, uh, you can just apply it to all the modules and then um, in you know have this like runtime uh, block act you know uh, make sure packages can only talk to other packages that they're allowed to. So if I was to I'm trying to to kind of conceptualize this in my mind and put it in a category. <laughs> so can sometimes be dangerous to try to put new technologies or new concepts into old categories. But is this if could I summarize this as saying it's like applying containers inside my JavaScript application? Could I say it's like using a micro VM? Or am I going too far with that statement? It like is it a firewall for JavaScript code? Like like what what, what previous concept that we have floating in our brains can we attach this to? Is it most like? It's probably not exactly like anything that I described, but which one is it closest to to help us kind of conceptualize? Yeah. Uh I think containerization is a really great way of thinking about it. Just because, uh, like on on one machine, you would have many you can have many containers uh, talking to each other, and in the same way, inside your application, you have this like further finer uh, gray, granularity of container um, 
communicating. So you're just uh, bringing containerization down to different parts of your application, you know, single-threaded applications. And you call these uh, CES containers. So CES is uh, Secure ECMAScript, correct? Yeah. Yeah, ECMAScript being uh, another name for JavaScript. Right. And, uh, so SES. Yeah. Okay. And, and so that is the project and uh, standard being championed by Agoric. So uh, if all goes smoothly, this will be a, these containers will be, uh, you know, first-class citizens in, in JavaScript. Does that mean Lava Moat might work itself out of a job if this becomes a standard in the, like the browser, uh, browser writers would, would implement this capability natively in the, in the browser? Yeah, that would be fantastic. Uh, it, <laughs> the whole, so this is an open source project and not, not a uh, business venture. Um, so uh, again, it has the same problem of like, who, well, who's going to maintain this? If this all uh, disappeared into, um, you know, uh, JavaScript spec and uh, Node.js features, I would be very, very happy. Mm. But uh, in the meantime, it, it works now with the code you already have. Um, so if you have, uh, you know, some Node server, for example, you have, some, you know, your Express or whatever you, you might be using, uh, the first thing you can do is you can uh, you know, install uh, Lava Mode or just use MPF. MPX, if you want it to be automatically installed, uh, run it and have it generate a policy file for you, and then you run it again and without the, the you know generate policy file flag, and it will use that policy file and run your app. Um, and unless you're doing something really uh, strange in there, it should work just as as, uh, as simple as that. Um, there could be some performance impacts. I'm I'm running it in production right now and it. It seems to run fine, but it could depend on your workload and how much your workload crosses like package boundaries because we do some extra uh, protection to make uh, packages not be able to mutate what the other packages export. Yeah, the, the, there's like three main dangers in JavaScript that we worry about. One is the basics is object, uh, capital O object, and capital, o, uh, capital A array. Like the basic built-in uh, functionality of JavaScript is all mutable, and so you don't want that to change, and so Sess locks that down. Um, and then we want to limit access to platform APIs like disk, like network, um, and Sess, the Sess containers help us with that. And then uh, the, the Lava Mode kernel is limiting uh, packages talking to each other and preventing packages from uh, you know, like corrupting each other. So do you have any, I mean, you mentioned performance and the fact that you're running this in production. I think that's always the million dollar question. Right for anything like this is what's the hit um, by is there you know have you done any kind of analysis or anything to say it's a ten percent performance hit it's a one percent it's negligible because um, I think a lot of people are going to be thinking about that when you know you're talking about a production grade enterprise application that's really scaled out you know ten percent is a big deal one uh, percent you might be able you could probably get away with so any any thoughts on what the actual kind of metrics would look like. For performance hit? It's a great question, and I was just scheming up today uh, a good way to get uh, decent metrics on that. Uh, I don't have one now, but uh, my server run, uh, so we run like a, a test uh, test network uh, free ether distributor um, server. So like if you're if you're deploying um, some smart contracts to Ethereum and you don't want to pay the transaction fees of the real network, you can just put it on this test server. And so we have an automated um, uh, faucet that will give you um, sort of fake test ether for this test network. 
And so that has a private key that needs to be protected. I mean, this, this thing is kind of low stakes, but it's uh, there and it's being hit by traffic all the time. Um, and it runs exactly the same as before um, without the lava moment catching supplies. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that one. And it's still using, um, so like for the cryptography it's using, it's still using native models. So it's like calling out to see for those models. And it's doing that for just this uh, one or two packages. And those packages are whitelisted to be able to run C as well. So it um, from from a you know pure pure security perspective, being able to call out to C like as soon as they're doing that, we can't contain it any further. So like obviously that that sounds bad, but it is uh, practicality. This is how you run your app that you've already built now that is already calling out to C. Uh, that it, that's uh, one of the key goals of Lama is like you should not really have to rewrite anything. Uh, you should, I'm not trying to come up with a new paradigm for how to build an app here. I want to take what you have and, and run it more safely. And, and the best part is if, if, uh, if the security guarantees I'm, I mean, I, I'm um, espousing LavaMote provides, even if there was a flaw found that uh, tears away all the security, you're back to where you are today. Hmm. You, you just have uh, no protection from supply chain attacks. Yeah, it doesn't get it. It's not going to make anything worse by um, having you know that challenge. So now, now I'm putting my, my kind of threat modeling hat on for a second and I'm thinking, okay, how do we attack this thing with LavaMote fully going? And so you mentioned that you have kind of a JavaScript, a, a kernel that's running um, that's in JavaScript. And so when, you th when you're thinking about this, like what are the, what are the potential threats when you have a fully when you have LavaMo going, is is there any? How would somebody attack this if they were trying to come in from another angle, get inside, and then potentially turn off the LavaMo, the protections, the package policy? And I'm assuming the the um, kernel is doing some type of a you know it's mitigating those individual requests and deciding like do we allow something to go through? Like what what are the what are the potential threats about how somebody could actually attack? lava mode itself embedded in an application yeah there's there's a few different things there's like uh if you are it depends on what kind of package you're, you're like trying to hijack in order to perform this attack or, or however it's set up if that package is already positioned to like uh deal with something like the network then it wouldn't seem strange if it uh you know had network access something powerful like that um uh or uh like i said earlier the you know, some a native module, some of them where it's trying to call out to see for like the sake of performance or, or something like this. Um, one thing that Love Mode does not do a good job of protecting against is um, is things that don't require any you know fancy platform APIs like network access or exfiltration, but they kind of sit in the middle of your app and mess with the data as it flows through. And an example for for MetaMask, we have you know. Um, transactions that are going through like an approval phase and then eventually get cryptographically signed and set up to the network. If you sat in the middle and you could like mutate the transaction parameters and say like, no, don't send the money to them, send it to me. You didn't need, um, you know, disk access or network access to do that. You just mess with like really important application data and it's throughput. And, and then, you know, the rest of the system carries off the attack for you. But you'd have to, you'd have to, you'd have to get in through some other vector to be able to cause that level of disruption. So it wouldn't be, it would be some other type of vulnerability they would take advantage of. 
not a lot. It wouldn't be specific to Lava Moat. Oh yeah, that that's not really uh, well specific to Lava Moat in that it would be way easier to do without um, if you didn't have Lava Moat. Um, if if Lava Moat, this is like one of your remaining options is to like manage to get uh, control of a evil package that is like really well positioned in the app. Like you happen to be passing in the sensitive state into that um, package, and so. Uh, I don't right now have good tooling against that, but I've been uh, looking into something like points to analysis where I can, where uh, you know, a developer could find some sensitive part of state of their app, and then it, it could uh, basically walk, walk the, the code and say like, so potentially these packages get direct access to mutate this, this state, you know, this variable that you've highlighted your cursor. Or so you mentioned earlier you were doing static analysis of those packages. So this is a function of Lava Moat. Is it actually doing static analysis of the packages that are being imported? Was that just to generate the policy or is that also to see if there's a, a uh, if you're using a package that's doing something that you might wanna reconsider? Uh, yeah, right now it's just for gener generating policy files. But if it if the policy that it generates looks uh, a little suspicious, that it's a good time to, to investigate what's going on. Okay, so that would be the that would be the thing for you would be if the you know the policy pops out, you're looking at it going, boy, it's really trying to do a lot of things that don't really seem to make sense. That that would be another positive for Lava Moat where you would have some insight into the application that you might not have had if you just launched a node app and it pulled all the dependencies and started running. Yeah, uh, precisely. And so right now the um, the policy file is at a per package basis. And so for each package, it says what other packages it can import, uh, what globals it can read from or write to. Um, and for the case of Node, what uh, built-in um, modules, uh, you know, like the ones that are provided by Node, Node has some built-in ones like crypto and stuff like this. Um, and the browser may be introducing a, a similar thing. Um, so there's a policy file for saying like what of those you can import because those are uh, particularly dangerous. And then uh, if you include native modules. For those uh, policy files, I was wondering about this, when you generate those, can you tweak them? Can you go back in and look at them and do them and tweak them as needed? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea is that it will generate, we generate uh, two files right now. I might change the way this works, but one is completely computer generated and it should work uh, without modification. And then there's a, a separate one um, that you can like override and add overrides to. And the idea is there's you commit both of them to version control, um, but when uh, you install new dependencies or something like that, and you want to generate the, the um, policy file again, you can just squash what you had before, um, but then your overrides are, are maintained. Okay, very cool. Um, so if, you know, if anyone's interested in, in Lava Mode, uh, please check it out on GitHub, uh, GitHub slash Lava Mode slash Lava Mode. And there's instructions in there. The, the best operating one right now is, is for Node, um, but there's also a Browserify plugin, and I'm working on a Webpack plugin. Um, and so you need to, I, I originally started with the, the Browserify plugin, um, and that's just one bundler that makes your JavaScript app ready, you know, ready to run in the browser. Um, and because that's what I was really worried about. I was worried about our app uh, being compromised. And then as I thought, you know more about the problem. It's like, oh well, if the you know the app build process is compromised, then uh, your you know you couldn't have created a, created a secure app. So you also have to run that build process, presumably in Node, um, securely. So 
uh, you, you want to start with lava node. Actually, the first thing you want to do is you want to run npm install or yarn install or whatever you use and make sure you ignore scripts because you can have post install scripts and pre-install scripts and all these things attached to your package. Um, and that's a good way to have your system owned. Um, so once you've disabled uh, that, maybe on your build server or also on your personal development machine, then you want to move on to moving your your build, uh, your build server or just a server if, if you're just running node stuff uh, in lava mode node. And so, yeah, you do lava mode node, generate a config file, and, and run it and see it happening. You can also uh, run lava mode node with another flag, which will generate, generate sort of like a, a debug uh, file or a manifest file, and then you can load it into the Lava Mode uh, visualizer, and that will give you a visual representation of your graph, and will attempt to to show you which parts of your graph are uh, particularly dangerous. Uh, okay, so this is a example of the Lava Mode visualization. Uh, on the left, there is a a list of all the packages that are included. And on the right, in the main of the screen, you have a uh, force-directed graph of a bunch of little circles attached to each other. Uh, there's this one little, this is a particularly uh, complicated app. And so this has been the main problem that I've been, been trying to tackle is this dependency graph. The purple one here at the center is, um, is the app code itself. And all the other dots are packages in this dependency graph. Uh, and these these dots are colored to give you um, an idea of how sort of featureful or, or how many platform APIs are given to them that might make them dangerous. Um, what's interesting when you look at this graph is that most of the nodes are green, and that means they have no platform capabilities. They're not using network or disk or something like this. Um, they're merely abstractions on top of the APIs of other things. Um, and then uh, throughout the network, there's a few things that are red. And so let me, um, let's pick a good one. This one is VM Browserify, and it is labeled as dangerous because it has access to the DOM. This is for a, a browser build. Um, and so if you have access to the DOM, you can inject script tags, and then you have unboxed uh, JavaScript access. And, and so uh, doing anything with the, with the DOM is, is sort of dangerous and sort of out of our, our sandbox and reach here, um, except that everything else doesn't have access to the DOM. Um, so the list is useful in terms of like, if you want to prioritize an audit of your dependencies, that's helpful. But it's also important to understand it as a graph, because if you have uh, some element in here, like this one, Crossfetch, its whole job is to just export a network view. And so the thing that's consuming it over here has full access to the network, even though it's you know it's green. It looks like it wouldn't have access to the network. So it is important to understand it as a graph. Yeah, this definitely gives you the some perspective on the complexity, though. Like when people are, if somebody's sitting there going, "I don't understand why software supply chain is hard," look at this picture. That is why software supply chain dependency management and and dependency vulnerabilities. This is why it's hard. And, and just looking at. On the left there, I'm, I'm seeing like UUID, I see like three or four or five different versions that are, <laughs> that different uh, packages are depended on. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's another thing too. And those are all from one one publisher. With complicated apps like these, uh, you know, this has uh, UI elements and stuff in it too. Those, those dependency graphs are particularly large. Um, but uh, 
Yeah, when you look at the graph, it's kind of a rat's nest. There's so many lines crossing. And uh, to try to untangle it and also to, as an excuse to do something weird, I, um, I made a VR version of this. So you can uh, like throw on a VR headset and look at this hairball as a 3D hairball. It, lo it looks a little bit better. And, and then you can you know you have some fun sci-fi vibes of like searching for the vulnerability in the, the network graph. It's fun. Um, so if you, if you uh, want to take a lot of note for a spin, you can spit out a config file and then spit out uh, a visualization file, which is exactly this dashboard uh, for your app. Yeah, so there's many, many different um, use cases. I mean, it could be it could be helpful to run Lava Mode in its native form, where you're actually you know running the policy. But this is also a great visualization tool if you're just trying, especially if you're trying to convince somebody, hey, here's why we need to look at using this tool in production. You know, here's the. This is a great way to see your app. Now, this isn't like a demo app. This is actually the app that we are running in production today. Look at all the red dots that exist here. That is that represents potential risk in the packages that we don't even know about. And you can add uh, the generation of this visualization to your CI flow and like have a little GitHub bot uh, post a link to it every time that, you know, a pull request comes up or a commit is made. And, and so you can see this is what it looks like now. Yeah, who broke the visualization? That'll be the new, it's not who broke the build, it's it's who made, who, who added a red dot. And then they'll be in trouble at that point if they add a red dot. Uh, so I, I think this is a great way of like starting that conversation uh, with your team, um, especially like I said before, you're you're really exposed to those direct dependencies, and you're not thinking that much about your long depend your you know large dependency graphs, except when you're watching those dependency install times. They're all flowing in then, and they're like, hmm, where'd they go? Okay, stop thinking about it now. Uh, now if you have this graph, you show them that it's like, oh, there they are. There's all those packages I saw being installed. So Aaron, thanks for um, kind of taking us through and helping us to understand the software supply chain challenges from the JavaScript world. Um, also understanding Lava Mode, all the different components and then even deployment options we talked about here. Um, you mentioned the GitHub page. That's a good resource for folks that wanna, you know, look, get more information or figure out how to use this. Um, what would be a key takeaway or a call to action? What would you like to see our audience do as a result of all the knowledge that you just shared with them. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that the big thing there is, is uh, starting to talk about this with your team because this problem is not talked about enough. Sometimes you know it comes up, but there's not a good solution there for how you tackle these things. So people kind of drop it, they're like, oh yeah, this situation is really bad, but what can we do about it? And so the conversation kind of ends there because there's not a lot of solutions out there. And I think Lava Mode is one of the first solutions out there. So uh, in order to like bring that conversation back up with your team, uh, you know, try it out, make this visualization, send it to uh, your team and like show them this, this cool uh, graph that you made. And then uh, people can, will start asking questions like, what is all that? You know, what's going on? Oh, that's our app, didn't you know? Cool. Well, thanks uh, Aaron for taking the time to, to share this knowledge with us. And uh, it's definitely, definitely been great to, uh, to learn. I've learned a, a number of different things about JavaScript and Node just in this conversation. So I'm sure our audience is going to learn a lot as well. And so thanks for being here with us. And uh, thanks for sharing your knowledge. And thanks for investing I mean, the hundreds, if not thousands of hours that go into running an open source project. Yeah. Um, not everybody knows that. Not enough people recognize how much time people volunteer. And like you said, you're not getting paid. This is, this is a, uh, a labor of love for the community. So um, thanks for the effort you put in there and thanks for being here today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. You'll find the show on Twitter at AppSec Podcast or on the web at www.securityjourney.com slash application dash security dash podcast. You can also find Chris on Twitter at EdgeRoute and Robert at Robert Hurlbutt. Remember, security is a journey, not a destination. Thank you.